This podcast is produced by the ABA Journal. We bring you the latest legal news every day from around the web. Visit us online at abajournal.com. The cost of legal education is grossly out of proportion to the economic benefits of a JD for most graduates. And according to one law professor, something needs to be done about it now. I'm ABA Journal Business of Law reporter Rachel Zahorsky, and joining me for today's Modern Law Library podcast to discuss his new book, Failing Law Schools, is Brian Talmanaha, the William Gardner Hammond Professor of Law at Washington University Law in St. Louis. Brian, in your book, you take issue with law schools and the American Bar Association section of legal education and admissions over a variety of topics, including validity of merit scholarship programs, 10% yearly tuition hikes, federal loan guarantees, substantial library collections, and even bloated faculties of tenure-track professors, which all contribute to the soaring costs of law school. Before we delve into today's discussion, would you like to read a passage from your book to set up for our readers a more accurate picture of today's legal education landscape? I will, uh, Rachel. Thank you very much. The economic model of law schools is broken. Annual tuition at over a dozen law schools topped $50,000 in 2011, with a dozen more schools poised to follow. After adding living expenses, the out-of-pocket cost of obtaining a law degree at these schools reaches $200,000. Nearly 90% of law students borrow to finance their legal education, with the average law school debt of graduates approaching $100,000. Many law graduates cannot find jobs as lawyers, enduring the worst market for legal employment in decades. Paying no heed to the adverse job market, law schools increased their enrollment in 2009 and 2010, which will send more graduates scrambling for scarce jobs three years hence. A series of public revelations about widespread distortions and dubious activities damaged the credibility of law schools in 2011. Law schools across the country were advertising sky-high employment rates and triple-digit salaries for recent graduates when the reality was far different. They were criticized for offering scholarships to lure students who were unaware of the significant chance they would forfeit the scholarship after the first year. Two well-respected law schools admitted that they had falsely reported LSAT scores and grade point averages to the American Bar Association. Proud and dignified institutions that have long held themselves out as the conscience of the legal community, law schools across the country have been engaging in disreputable practices. When called to account for these actions, law schools protest that they are just following the rules. They suggest that unhappy graduates should take responsibility for their poor decisions to incur such high debt. They universally place the blame for inflated employment numbers on the U.S. News ranking, as if a magazine was responsible for their conduct. Elite law schools distance themselves from the worst offenders, conveniently ignoring that they, too, engage in questionable actions, merely to a lesser extent. Law schools at every level have been failing their ethical responsibilities while pointing the finger at others. In this book, I explore how law schools have arrived at this sorry state and the implications of this sad condition for the present and the future. At the root of these problems is the way law schools today are chasing after prestige and revenue without attention to the consequences. Brian, you conclude that passage in your book by saying the economic model of law schools is broken. And you continue in the subsequent chapters to take issue with the education loan system and the law school accreditation standards. What are some of the proposed solutions, or how can these standards be changed? How can the loan system be managed in a better way 
to help ease the tensions between the student loan debt and the job prospects for future graduates? I focus on, I make a number of proposals about things that should be done, but in particular I focus on two aspects of it. One is the accreditation system, as you identify, and the second is the federal loan program. With respect to the accreditation system, my basic proposal is that the accreditation standards that support or bolster or uphold the academic model of law schools should be stripped away from the standards. And by academic model of law schools, what I mean uh, are those provisions that relate to research and scholarship, uh, anything related to uh, tenure for law professors, tenured positions, uh, teaching loads. Uh, now, these provisions increase the cost of legal education because what they result in is requirements that that law schools essentially be staffed primarily by uh, academic-oriented professors. It limits the use of adjuncts, professors on contract. Uh, I should emphasize that the standards themselves don't require all of these things. There's language in there that relates to them, but, uh, but the truth is that it's the way the standards are interpreted and applied by accreditation teams that is made up of legal educators. So by removing all of this language, uh, the, these actions will stop. The, the important effect of this is not that we'll not have academic professors. It's that it'll allow for differentiation among law schools, that some law schools will continue to be run as they are, essentially as research institutions, while other law schools will uh, focus on providing a legal education at a more affordable cost. Uh, these law schools will rely more heavily on, on lawyers and judges as adjuncts. They'll hire uh, lawyers with uh, experience who are, are not interested in doing scholarship, but as a result will teach more courses. We teach very few courses, but uh, there's no reason why you can't th teach three courses a semester. Uh, so these changes in the ABA standards would allow for differentiation. The second uh, proposal that I focus on relates to changes to the federal loan program. Tuition has gone up every year for over 30 years, and, and I mean every single year. And a big driver of tuition increases in the past uh, dec couple of decades uh, is the federal loan program. Initially, the federal loan, uh, federal, federal government guaranteed private loans. Uh, so if a student would default, the federal government would step in and cover that. Uh, in recent years, the federal loan, uh, the federal government has essentially taken over the loan program, and it provides the loans directly to the schools, and and then the schools disperse the living expenses to the students. The problem with the federal loan program is it's essentially carte blanche. The money is given with no limits, no caps, and really no questions asked. The federal government doesn't make any determination of the likelihood of repayment. Uh, and, it, and it sets no limits on how much either individual students can borrow or how much federal money that law schools can get. And this is important. What I think people don't realize is that law schools are getting millions and millions of dollars from the federal government every year, and I, I mean directly from the federal government. Uh, so, the, so the changes I propose are, one, applying outcome tests or what we call gainful employment tests to to law schools to uh, maintain their eligibility for federal loans. Uh, these tests are already applied to for-profit colleges and there's no reason in principle why they shouldn't be applied to law schools. And they essentially would require that, that law schools demonstrate consistently on a year-by-year -year basis that students are, are, are uh, having good results. That is essentially being able to obtain jobs that allow them to repay their loans. 
the, the other uh, aspects of the proposals I make are one is to set some sort of cap on how much individual students can borrow federal money. The Graduate PLUS loans are not, have no limits now, and I, I just pick a number, $125,000 as a cap. And if, if there were caps on individual borrowers, uh, law schools would set, have to set tuition with this cap in mind. Uh, now, that might sound like a lot of money, and indeed it is, but there are about 10 schools now in which the average debt on, uh, of graduates on, upon graduation exceeds $140,000. So so picking a cap like 125 is even below what many the debt many students have now. And then the final proposal I make is to set caps on how much money any particular law school can get from the federal government in a given year. Many schools today get over 40 or 50 million dollars from the government every year. Two schools get over 70 million dollars from the government every year. Now the particular caps that I set need to be can we can pick different amounts. The point really is uh, to have some sort of cap as a way of restraining uh, tuition increases as well as enrollment increases. And Brian what would you say to critics who say reducing access to federal student loans could prevent law schools from admitting lower-income students, inadvertently making things worse, inadvertently adding to the stratification of the profession? Uh -huh. um, and in addition to that, talking about modifying the bankruptcy code is um, some, another point that's made in the book. Um, and what would you say to critics who say, well, if we allow student loan debt now surpasses credit card debt in this country. What would be the ramifications if suddenly all of that debt was dischargeable? Um, or if student loan debt did become dischargeable, would it make it even more difficult for law students to get the private loans that they need most often to subsidize the federal loans in order to finance their educations? Mm -hmm. uh, on the argument about access, I, I think there's this ironic aspect to it because Law schools are saying, well, you can't limit federal loans because that would inhibit access. What, what inhibits access to law school today is the high price that we charge. It's the cost of tuition. And if law schools were really committed to providing access, then we would keep tuition at a more manageable level. And in addition, we would provide need-based financial aid. So, so yes, indeed, law schools will say, well, you're limiting access. Uh, but if you look at the level of the cap, that's hardly a limit. The cap I, suge I suggest for individual students is 125 million. Uh, excuse me, 125,000. Now that's a very high amount, and uh, any law school in which tuition was set at 20 or 25 thousand dollars a year would easily, uh, the student would easily come over, uh, under the cap. So again, I think it's it's uh, it, it certainly is an argument that law schools will make. But I think when they make it, we should ask law schools to now explain why it's necessary for them to charge $50,000 a year, which is what tuition at high-end schools has, has reached uh, in recent years, as opposed to $25,000. Uh, uh, oh, no, please continue. Okay. In terms of your other questions, uh, I, I need to clarify one thing about the bankruptcy provision that, that you cited. The proposals that I made are, are forward-going. When I suggest that we set caps on how much individual students can borrow and or how much a law school can get. I also suggest that in conjunction with this cap, in order to prevent uh, law schools from merely saying, okay, students go into the private market, of course they will and, and students can do that, uh, in conjunction with the caps we have to also remove federal guarantees, put no federal guarantees. In fact, there aren't any guarantees now because the federal government loans the money directly. But if there are no federal guarantees and also 
allow loans to be discharged in bankruptcy, that will impose discipline on private lenders. And what I mean by that is the private lenders will not provide loans to students who, are, who attend schools in which there's a high likelihood of non-payment. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, again, the top, the 10 most schools of the, with graduates with the highest debt have debt in, in excess of $140,000, but that's the average debt for the students. Banks would not loan money to those students, uh, all, all but one of those schools, and the one school in that list is Northwestern, uh, are low-ranked schools in which, in some of these schools, 30% of the students, uh, graduates, obtain jobs as lawyers. And many of those jobs pay $60,000 a year. They're not making the monthly payments on their debt. So if you put, if you add the caps and then increase, in addition to that, provide no federal guarantees and allow loans to be discharged in bankruptcy, private lenders will not step, step into that market because they'll know there's a high likelihood of non-payment. So the problem now is there are no economic signals being sent and there's no economic discipline, and that's genuine economic discipline. Now, the concern you raise about discharge and bankruptcy is a genuine concern, but it would come into play uh, in relation to um, uh, changing the law for all pre-existing uh, debt. I don't specifically make that proposal. I actually am for that as well, but for an entirely different set of reasons. And now, when we, if we were to change the bankruptcy, if we were to allow federal student loans to be discharged in bankruptcy, there are certain ways in which uh, restrictions can be placed on it so that students don't get their education, borrow the money, and then flee the debt immediately. And there are various proposals out there like requiring them to uh, you know, disallowing any filing for bankruptcy until a five-year period or ten-year period has passed. Uh, I don't actually talk about any of that in the book because the book focuses, the proposals that you refer to really focus on uh, going forward. Uh, so I'm, not, I'm actually for what you say, but it's a much more complicated subject and would require a lot more thought. Uh, and <laughs> a second book, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Um, to continue on that going forward in the future, um, I want to mention one anecdote that you share in the very beginning of when you were interim dean at St. John's, and you mentioned that it was a very uh, tension-filled time. It was a difficult time. and there, were, there was a lot of resistance among faculty members when you froze salaries and made other moves as dean to help contain, as interim dean to help contain costs. In fact, one former colleague wouldn't even look at you in the hallway and another mm -hmm. joked about the money that you cost him. Mm -hmm. um, if we were to look at law school accreditation standards or perhaps there were to be significant sweeping ch changes in the accreditation standards, um, what type of moves would you expect law deans to have to make in order to make these uh, the, new, the adaptations that the schools would be allowed to make, say even if standards were more lax or they didn't have to have some of the overhead items that you discussed in your books, um, what would be things that now, if you were to go back as an interim dean, you would handle differently, or how would you make this more palatable to faculty who are used to having permanent job guarantees, who are used to having a, a very nice salary and are very comfortable with the way the system is as is? Mm -hmm. Uh, first, let me say about St. John's, that was 15 years ago, and the situation has vastly changed today. Uh, the faculties, we, they have a great dean there. The faculty works very hard. So I don't want to talk about it in the context of St. John's or that particular example because uh, what I'm talking about will apply to, a to, to 200 schools or maybe about 180 of them. Even better, 180 in today's, in today's climate. Today's Let's focus climate, on that. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the truth is law schools have to radically change their operation. The, the economics of law school don't work. That's what the book is about. We cost too much for the economic return obtained by the majority of students. Now, what, what radically change our operation means is we have to begin trimming faculties. Faculties grew enormously, uh, as you said, use the word faculty bloat. Uh, in in the last two decades, this is adding more doctrinal professors. That's because we teach less and we write more, adding more clinicians, adding more legal legal writing staff professors. Uh, that has to change. I mean, they, the 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 the, co- the faculty portion of the budget uh, is half or more at most law schools. So we're the big chunk item. And uh, in order to cut costs. Uh, we that has to be trimmed. Uh, now that will not be an easy thing to do. It's not easy to get rid of tenure track professors. That's one of the problems I discuss in the book. As a consequence of law schools sizing up their faculties, we it, we are very inflexible in that respect. Uh, so so professors will have to leave. I think you'll begin seeing some of this, uh, and professors essentially will have to teach more. Professors across the country teach about an average, a bit under 12 credits a year, which is six classrooms hours a semester. For most of the 20th century, we taught 14 or 15 or 16 classroom hours a semester, and it, it, it's doable. There's, there's no reason why we can't teach three classes a semester or three in one semester and two in the second. Uh, what it means is we'll have less time for research, but that's okay as well. That's a different choice. Well, of course. I'm sorry to interrupt, Brian. I I know we're very short on time, and I wanted to get one other point that we had discussed briefly that expanded upon this. Um, if law schools do say they do make these changes, mm-hmm. um, professors are, are the workload adjusts, changes. Um, law schools aggressively put plans in place. The ABA adjusts accreditation standards. Um, and one thing in your book that we discussed privately previously to recording this podcast, um, is lowering some of the standards um, or easing up on some of the requirements uh, to a different level that allows schools to choose what type of curriculum, what type of teaching model is best for them, and then perhaps students can choose which school is best for them based on what area of law or what type of practice, whether it be solo practitioner or to choose a job in government or to go for a big law job would be best for them, be a best fit. And you had mentioned in our earlier conversation that we're actually, you propose changing the front end to match whatever is going on in the back end of the profession. Mm-hmm. Could you expand a little bit more on that and what that means to sure. prospective law students? Sure. We've had multiple studies that have shown for decades now that, that the American legal profession is, is not one profession in the sense that there are really different hemispheres of work. So there's the corporate law market, and people who enter the corporate law market are doing quite well. When I say failing law schools, I'm not saying everyone's failing uh, or all all graduates are having poor results. Uh, Graduates who come out and earn $140,000, $150,000, and this is the pay in the the top law firms are doing just fine. But the reality is the majority of the graduates work in the other, what we call other hemisphere, and that relates to people who serve individual clients, small firm practices, uh, local government, state and city government positions that are much, uh, the pay scale is much lower. And although the pay in the corporate legal market has gone up uh, a lot, pay in the other market uh, has actually stagnated in real terms. And the reason for it is because we have 
constantly produced an oversupply of lawyers. So there's no pressure on wages to push wages up in the low end of the legal market. So my suggestion for differentiation of law schools uh, would recognize that reality and allow lower-cost law schools to come into existence or existing schools to strip away the costs and reduce their costs. Um, and by the way, I want to emphasize, I'm not talking about taking away fundamental standards relating to lawyer training. I'm talking about taking away standards that impose requirements that support research by professors that require tenured professors to be uh, the bulk of the faculty on, on law schools. These requirements in, increase costs, but most of them are to the benefit of law professors. I'm not saying you don't have to teach the fundamental courses, you don't have to teach skill courses. I don't argue for any of that. So I don't think it will actually have any effect at all on the actual training that's, that students will get in law school. What it will do is bring the price down to a more affordable level, and that that price reduction will better align what it is students are now paying for the kinds of jobs that they're already getting now coming out of law school. The median salary for 2010 was $63,000. That's the median salary. If you have an average debt, and the average debt nationwide is now over $100,000, if you have an average debt of 100000 you cannot make the monthly payments on the median salary. And the only way, and this is what I mean by the economics are broken, so what we have to do is bring down the cost of entry for the bulk of lawyers who are going to earn about or around the median salary, a little bit more, a little bit less. But those, that salary is what many lawyers can expect to earn, and they're paying too much now to get that expected earning. Brian, to continue on with that, when we're talking about change, you said in the very beginning that law schools have very little incentive to change unless they're forced to do so. Mm -hmm. And I would assume they'd be forced to do so either by Congress or by their customers or perhaps by alumni. Mm -hmm. um, and when you say who you wrote this book for, it's not so much a how-to-fix-things guide for law schools as it is an education tool for parents of prospective students, prospective mm -hmm. students so they know what they're getting into, for congressmen uh, and, and women to look at and say, we need to examine this issue much more closely. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also say in Chapter 11 of your book, that the belief that law school is a solid choice is bolstered by the general article of faith in American society that education is good. The more, the better. How do we get the point across that in this particular instance, more is not exactly better and maybe even harmful, or the way we're getting more is not better, more loans is not better, the, you know, the consequences of getting more education are not better right now. You know, what would you say to parents of our prospective student to prospective students to those legislatures that, that you'd like to address in this book. Why should they care beyond one law student who can't get a job or pay their loans about this problem? Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're absolutely correct that, that this, the, the ethos in American society is education is good and the more the better, and it's very tough uh, to counter that message. And in particular, people think that if you get into a professional career, you've, you've got it made and that is both in terms of income but also status. I mean, the status of a lawyer is very nice. The, the, the way to counter this is to get out information about the reality of the situation, and that's what I try to do in the book. Uh, and let me emphasize one number that brings out this, uh, illustrates this quite starkly. Statistics released by the ABA recently show that in, for the class of 2011, nine months after graduation, 
Only 55% of the graduates nationwide had obtained full-time permanent jobs as lawyers, 55%. So, so the, the reality is that uh, the, going to law school now is a risky proposition because it's not just that you have a substantial chance of not getting a job as a lawyer at all. You'll have a law degree and you'll feel proud of the status, but you actually won't necessarily be a lawyer and 45% in 2011 weren't, at least not with permanent law jobs. It's not just that a substantial percentage are not getting jobs as lawyers. It's also that many of those who do obtain lawyer jobs don't earn enough to make the monthly payments on the average debt. Now, to, to answer your question, the key is to get information out there about this. Our society needs lawyers. Uh, being a lawyer can be a very rewarding career. But people have to have their eyes open about the risks and the costs and the economic return. And, again, that's why I wrote the book. But I, I want to emphasize the change is already coming. The key to what's been going on is that p students in large numbers have been willing to come because they think it pays off and able to come because the federal loan uh, system provided them with the money. The willingness to come is, is, is now uh, being affected by all the news uh, about law schools that has, has come out in the past year in the reports in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. There's a lot more information out there that people can, uh, ten, can get about the fact that law school is no longer uh, necessarily a good idea. Uh, by the way, uh, a very important source of information is law school transparency, and I encourage anyone listening to take a look at that website because they're putting out information about employment prospects on individual schools. Uh, so, yes, I did write the book. I, I was trying to reach parents, uh, prospective students and senators. I give very concrete advice about how, about you know, what a monthly payment is on a debt, how much income you have. I give concrete uh, advice about particular schools and how to read their statistics, and I think that's all important. Uh, right. If I, I get, just quickly, I'd like, like sure. to get to the last point you made. For me, this is a matter of individuals and people having bad results, but it's, it's also a matter of the implications for society of law schools having erected an enormous economic barrier to access to, to the legal profession. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I'm very concerned about the consequences of the high price of entry to a legal career, and I think ultimately it will have significant class effects on our society and the next generation of lawyers will uh, consist either of wealthy uh, people from wealthy families who go to elite schools and are free to pursue all kinds of careers in elite government, elite business, elite law, and everyone else uh, being saddled with enormous debt or actually more and more numbers of people from the middle class choosing not to go to law school at all. And I think the current situation, the pricing structure of law school, has this implication for the next generation of our profession. Brian, I thank you for joining us. I do hope that you come back. For our listeners, please check out Professor Tamanaha's book, Failing Law Schools, and add their voices to this podcast on ABAjournal.com. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at ABAjournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.